Hello and welcome to Nesson Dorma, or should I say welcome back. I'm Martin Ramsey, you probably don't know me, but worry not, I am joined by two people whom you will know and love, I'm sure. Gary Nails with me, how are you doing Gary? I'm very well, lovely to be here Martin, lovely to have your dulcet tones joining us. Uh, long-time fan, um, ah. first-time caller, as it were. And we're also joined, of course, by the wonderful Rob Smythe. How are we, Rob? Good evening. <laughs> I'm good, yeah. Cheers. How are you? I'm very well. Um, Ness and Dorma's back, Rob, and it's good to to be joining you and, and being part of this. We're going to kick off a series of pods, or a mini-series of a, hopefully a long series of pods, being back in action, um, back 35 summers ago to 1998 in the European Championships of that year. I know you guys have done a pod on this before, but this will be a deep, deep dive. You'll have a show on each of the group match days. You'll have a show in the semi-finals, and you'll have a show on the final, as well as a kind of wrap-up. How do we make sense of this? How do we assess it 35 years later? But this will be a preview show. Think of me as Des Lyon on BBC One on the night before <laughs> to tell you all about the players that you've maybe heard of but haven't really seen much of. Um, before we do that then, gents, um, 1988, what age were you? What were you up to? I think Kylie and Tiffany and Bross were in the chart. You could see Wall Street and three men and a, a baby um, that particular week when this kicked off. Rob, what age were you and, and what were you doing? And was this, the European Championships that is, as big a deal? Were you, you, you that feeling of anticipation you might have had two years earlier for Mexico or certainly two years later for Italian 90? Yeah, <clears throat> so I would have been 12 uh, first year of secondary school, I think. And for some reason, the song I'm hearing in my head is Father Figure by George Michael. I don't know whether that actually fits. But anyway, I, I don't think it was it was a big deal. Of course it was. But I don't think it was that big a deal. I think the first tournament I was properly um, mad about before it even happened would be Italian 90. Um, but I do have memories of a lot of the games, of watching them. And yeah, um, and it becoming a big thing. But I, I can't actually, I don't have any particular recollection of... Um, an excitement beforehand. The only thing I can kind of vaguely remember actually is I think rushing home from school for England's last qualifier against Yugoslavia, which had to draw, and they were like, I think I'm pretty sure when I got home, they were falling up, something like that. But I've only got really slight, small snapshots, not a really vivid memory, as I do for pretty much every tournament from Italian 90 up to about, I don't know, 2010 when old age starts to kick in. <laughs> Gary, what were you? What were you up to that, that summer? Well, I was 25. You were in fashion, Gary. Yeah, I was, yeah. Uh, I'd, um, I'd just turned 25, and I was working in the buying office for Dorothy Perkins in London's glamorous uh, West End there at uh, Oxford Circus. And um, I was spending lots of times in, or lots of time in sort of restaurants and uh, meeting, uh, dare I say, uh, various uh, women uh, for dinner. And um, going to pubs as well, uh, out with the lads, out with the girls, um, and I was I was enjoying my time. Uh, I was an assistant merchandiser at that time, so I was not a manager, but I was on the slippery pole, and um, it was it was good fun. Uh, it wasn't quite like Italian ninety in that it didn't grip the nation the way Italian ninety did, and that's often seen as a kind of watershed uh, as football grew out of being four football fans and became the kind of 
cultural juggernaut that it is today. But it was certainly, uh, it caught the imagination and it caught interest to the extent which I recall um, the England game against Holland, uh, the Netherlands, was I think 4.15 start on a Wednesday and the management hired in uh, televisions, the kind that you used to get at school, you know, on a, on a kind of um, stand five foot off the floor. And we wheeled this onto the, uh, onto the buying office floor. There must have been half a dozen or so of them so that people could still work. We had the very early days of desktop computers then so people could sit at their desks there was no internet of course um and sort of watch the, the match and i remember being asked by because it was a very female dominated uh, office as it would be in women's fashion i remember being asked about you know which players were good and and all of this and um we probably come to van basten and whether he was going to play or not play and all of this kind of palaver but i i do remember people saying to me oh, i'm reading we should be scared of this van basten uh figure he might be the key man for for holland and i remember saying yeah he's 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 pretty good, and I think you know he is a danger. I didn't realise quite how good he mm. was. I don't think any of us did uh, until he sort of scored that hat trick against England. But it was an indication that it it was it was part of that summer, but it wasn't the central point in the summer, as I'm sure we'll come on to. It was only a, a two week, sixteen day tournament, so. The build-up was probably a week. The aftermath was probably a couple of days, and it wasn't way that a Euros would be today or you know there was no Badil and Skinner song it wasn't the leading item in the news for the a week beforehand we were all sort of monitoring Brian Robson's body falling apart and whether it was a shoulder that was hanging off or the knee that was hanging off or, or whatever it was but um you know that the, it, it was different days there was no internet there was four television channels i think there was yeah if it, there was sky it was very early days yeah. yeah there was um you would go through and it's hard to believe isn't it looking from this angle you would you would go through you'd listen to the news or you'd watch the news on television or you'd listen to the news on the radio and um it would it would finish and that would be it you would be thinking, well, what's the sports news? <laughs> what's happened in the world of sport? But none of it was deemed important enough to actually uh, bother talking about it in, in news bulletins on the BBC or, or ITV or Channel 4. So sport played a, a, a smaller role in what was really a smaller life. And I think that's indicated by the fact that so many of the um, of the teams and again we'll come to this i'm sure uh were were homegrown players so you know the the german team played in germany the england team played in england the Ireland team played in england as well but you know that's slightly different but um it was it was a smaller world and in many ways it was it was a better world for that but in many ways of course it wasn't how about you martin Oh, um, I was only seven. I oh. I do remember it being on. So I, I do, once we get into the games, I certainly, I, I do remember certain games being on. My dad would have been watching it. Um, possibly because Scotland weren't there. I wouldn't have been as um, invested in it. Uh, 
I my first football memory is Mexico, so I, I do recall that, and I do recall the, the Uruguay Scotland Uruguay game, looking for that draw or looking for that win. Of course, it, it did um, end up a draw. Um, so it introduced the disappointment very very early on, which I think is important in this this sporting life that we have. Um, but Italian ninety did feel different. I was bouncing off the walls in anticipation of the eighth of June, and. I could probably tell you now where I was for, for pretty much every single game. It was just devouring something. So this this, this didn't. Interestingly, we'll, we'll get to the, the preview and some of the, the contemporaneous writing. But it was talked up as this is going to be the best thing football's ever ever seen. Um, and, well, what isn't? It's a pattern that's that's, that's pretty much um, been, been kept in play um, since then. Where was football in the summer of 1988 then? Uh I guess two teams stick out. You've done a podcast, haven't you, in, in the, the earlier Ness and Dorman days on Liverpool's 87-88 league season, which was tremendous. Um, without Rush, of course, that was the season he, he was in Italy, uh, but with Aldridge and Beardsley and Barnes, um, they messed up that double chance, of course, famously against Wimbledon. I don't think I'm joined by two men who are naturally predisposed to watch Liverpool <laughs> football about that. So let's give a bit of love for, I guess, the other club in Europe that that was grabbing the attention, which was um, um, Arrigo Sacchi's Milan, who won that Scudetto, which then propelled, of course, the, the European Cup success, and, and they were just the team of um, the very late 80s and early 90s. Um, battling it out, Rob, with Napoli for most of that season until the third last game, I think, and they, they beat Napoli 3-2 and went a point ahead, and they saw it out, and by seeing it out, I really mean that, they drew twice, and Napoli lost both of those those final two games. That that that, that kind of denouement is almost un, unthinkable now, um, but they, they did what they needed to. Um, they would add their third Dutchman, more of which a lot later on throughout this series that summer, when they got Frank Rijkaard from Sporting. Um but there was something special there with the Berlusconi project and, and everything that was happening there. Yeah, and I think it happened pretty quickly, didn't it? Um, I forget exactly when Saki took over, but yeah, it was pretty... Uh, obviously, we know all about how he revolutionised uh, football with the pressing, the high line, and that kind of kamikaze offside trap and everything else. Yeah, the game in Naples is kind of one of the great Serie A games, I think. They won 3-2. Um, Napoli were champions. Yeah, they were. Yeah, yeah. And that, that rivalry for about three or four years was fantastic. I mean, Maradona loathed AC Milan. I think all, he also respected them, obviously. He just loathed them because they were a direct opponent. Um, yeah, it's interesting. We we think of them rightly, I think, as one of the all-time great teams. But actually, that was the only Scudetto they won under Saki, which I, I yeah. don't think reflects badly on them so much as reflects well on the quality of the competition. And the, the quality time. of the league. Yeah, it But it got them into league. the European Cup. Which exactly. they would then of course win twice and then just keep that 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 whole kind of train rolling. Um yeah. I saw I saw a musical a couple of uh, months ago, and I guess you're thinking, where's this going now? Because the musical was called Berlusconi, and um it was an unlikely subject for a musical, but so is Alexander Hamilton. So, you know, we'll allow it that. But it wasn't very successful for a whole variety of reasons. Um, but it charts the uh, the rise of Berlusconi, who is unsavoury character. I think uh, we can say that without fear of contradiction. Um, and it, it skates over a little bit of, of his acquisition of, of AC Milan. But um, it does present it very cynically as just a, a, another 
kind of playing card that Berlusconi put in his hand in order to be able to play it at a later stage for the greater glory of Silvio Berlusconi, um, which I'm, I'm sure it was. And you know, who would have thought that uh, 35 years later we would see sports washing done to the extent it is today? <laughs> it was a kind of relatively benign and relatively uh, small scale bit of sports washing with Milan. But uh, my memory of them... Um, being much less technical than you guys, especially uh, you, Rob, was that the kit was just fantastic. The red and black stripes and worn by those uh, figures there. Uh, Maldini looked like a god who'd been sort of sculpted out of of the, the, the most beautiful stone that uh, you would find in the marble of Carrara or something. And then the, the, the Dutchman as well. These were all beautiful human beings. Uh, <laughs> amazing examples of how the body can move in space. And in that kit, I don't think footballers have ever looked better. And there's been some good kits around the world, but I don't think anything tops that 80s black. Uh, Russo and Nero, is it? The red and black stripes? I'm sure I'm sure you both remember the sponsor, do you? Is, was it Makita or something? Or am I thinking of something No, else? they had Motta in the early 90s. Motta, I knew it was M. No, but it was Mediolanum. Mediolanum. Is yeah, that Berlusconi's broadcasting company then? I, no, apparently it is Banca Mediolanum. It's an Italian bag insurance and asset mm. management ah. conglomerate. But anyway, uh, yeah, no, I agree with you about the kit. I always remember my mum, bless her. In those days, obviously, it was really, really hard. And she um, found a way to get me, yeah, that kit. Um, probably a bit later, maybe like maybe about 89, maybe 90. But anyway, yeah, something I remember fondly and wish I'd kept. Did you, yeah. did you wear it well, Rob? Especially the shorty mm. short shorts. <laughs> Obviously not, no. no. <laughs> like most people, anyone who's going on their holidays, maybe not in 88, maybe it was a bit too quickly, but anyone who's going abroad in 89, um, like many, I got the Dutch kit from this this tournament because, well, it was iconic, um, I suppose. Uh, PSV were European champions, Spawny-ish, I suppose, under a very young uh, I think. Uh, didn't win a single game of football from the quarterfinals onwards, just away goals or penalties. And um, yep, they, they got hands on. <laughs> no, not, not, not the most vintage of, of European Cup um, seasons, I think it's fair. Um, Ajax were runners up, I think, in the Cup Winners Cup final against Mechlin. Yeah. Remember that, that great Mechlin team that, that uh, arrived and then disappeared? And by Leverkusen were UEFA Cup winners. So a lot of the, the local. Was it Leverkusen or Erdogan? Was it Leverkusen? Leverkusen or Erdogan? Yeah, I Leverkusen. can't remember. Yeah, it was Leverkusen. So Dutch and German coming to the fore just as well. One other mm. thing that has happened in the, the, the late spring of 88 um, in St Andrews on the old course where the UFA delegates <laughs> their, their annual um, get together. Um, but they decided they were going to put in place a foreigners rule. Four maximum foreigners would be played. However, clubs got a grace period of three years. So Diego Maradona would be Italian for the, the purpose of that. Terry Butcher would be Scottish for three years as long as he stayed at Rangers. Diego Maradona stayed at uh, Napoli. Um, but as of 91-92, the bets were off. Four was your max. That got changed, 92-93, of course, to the more familiar three plus two homegrown. And... That was big. It was big news. I don't think it would really exploded at the time. People, well, we've got three years. I'm sure it will change. We'll, we'll sort that out. But I, 
I don't think it was um, as Corinthian as trying to keep the ethos of the European Cup um, to the to the, the the nation that those clubs came from. Um, it was done to ensure that when English clubs came back and they were not yet back, um, that they would not have the grip on these competitions that they once had because. It would be English, not British, of course. And the Liverpool team that took to these finals, you could hardly find an English player in them by the end. Um, I think the the, the team that, that won the double in 86, I think Craig Johnson would have been the only player to qualify to play for England. I think he was Australian. So it was a, a very British, or sorry, from the British Isles with the Republic Island as well. Um, so I think a cynical move by UEFA to ensure that um, they had that spread and one that would that would reverberate all the way to, of course, the Bosman um, judgment, which is 95 going into 96. And certainly someone with my accent and and speaking from my perspective had a huge impact on what any ambitious club was able to do if they were willing to spend money, willing to generate money, but did not have a lot of great talent that that was homegrown, shall we say. Um, Do you remember, remember, did it come out of nowhere? Was it discussed beforehand? Well, I say remember from, from your read. From from reading, well, it was in place de facto anyway. Italy would have a, a, a maximum mm-hmm. number of foreigners in Serie A, and and so would Germany as well. Um, and it was de facto in Britain as well. It's just that the home nations were counted yeah, at yeah, one. Yeah. So it, it was just kind of formalising that. But that was the that was the one difference um, mm-hmm. was that it would it would only be Scots and it would only be uh, English players, um, which would have uh, well. A, it was illegal. It was illegal yeah. then, not just um, uh, under the the Bosman judgment, um, but it would have it would have ramifications. Anyway, let's imagine that we're sitting here um, at the end of May nineteen eighty eight after the US have changed the world, um, looking ahead to this tournament. And I was half joking about Des Lynam a minute ago, Rob, but around <laughs> this time, certainly into the nineties, I'm thinking even into maybe ninety six, even ninety eight. Um, the casual football viewer, even the remotely committed football viewer, would need a show like this to explain who these teams were, who the players to, to look out for, because those faces, those names, those systems and shapes were not the wallpaper that they would be 10, 15 years later. This was going to be something a bit exciting, a bit exotic. You, you've heard the names before, some of them, some of them you won't. And, you know, the people who did know the stuff, you look at World Soccer, for example, of course you did. And if you were a reader of that, you, you would. But you wouldn't be seeing these these guys um, often. And therefore, the, there was something kind of special. And you did need someone to really spell it out for you um, in that way, in a way that's just unthinkable now. The only way I could maybe equate it, I don't know if this is fair, guys, if someone's watching the Olympics and my mother turns into a, an expert <laughs> on gymnastics and swimming and everything else every four years. Um, but the, there would be kind of explanation. There would be, look, here's who you, you need to look out for. Because they know there's a lot of casual viewers here who don't keep up to date with the latest kind of swimming results and and, and, and meets and whatever else. And there was something about that, even in, in, in 1988. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the, you kind of picked up where you left off two years ago, but the problem is obviously a hell of a lot happened in two years. So... A Mexico 86 would have seen Emilio Butchogreno score four against Denmark, I think five or six, five in the tournament. Um, and you would assume, presumably think he would be a threat against the Euros. What you wouldn't know is his form had been absolutely diabolical for Madrid and there was talk about him not, potentially not even playing. So you're right. And of course, there'll be loads of new faces. You, I mean, people like Klinsmann, Colo, who played their first tournaments, 
we would know very little about them. The pre-tournament booklet was so valuable. Um, and it's quite, obviously, I understand why it's changed and everything, but I always feel quite sad now that even though they're still published, they're kind of irrelevant, these booklets now. There's so much information coming from everywhere. Um, but also they felt, and I'm not sure they were from a journalistic point of view, but they felt like gospel. You trusted them more, I think, than you would now. Um, so, yeah, they, they, were, they were such a good thing. I mean, World Soccer would be the obvious one, but I was looking at the Times, had like a team preview as well. Um, yeah, they were absolutely essential, really. You might, you've picked up something, sorry Gary, I, I like your thoughts on, on this as well, because I think Rob's picked on something, even Keir Radnich here on his, his World Soccer preview, makes this, well not makes the same kind of mistake, but but it's, it's a narrative, it's like an international football narrative that previously on international football, here's what happened in, in 1986, and we're picking up from that. His, his preview of this is saying, look, you know, Denmark, England, Soviet Union, West Germany, They've been quite strong of late, and they were, you know, they did decent, um, a decent World Cup two years ago. Therefore, there's just this automatic assumption that they just run hey, straight yeah. in as if these two whole years, two whole seasons just haven't happened. And because of this disparity and this detachment, the casual viewer is picking this up as if it was a, a second season of a, of a, of a TV series and just expecting to be picking up exactly kind of where, where they left off. And even in, in, in expert analysis like this, that he's not picking out. Petrogenio's form it's just like well last time we saw him or last time you saw him to the reader yeah. he was he was superb and, and, and therefore that's the reputation that carries over it it's as almost if it kind of stops the qualification happens behind closed doors and your, <laughs> your tournament contenders are, are revealed you know the night before yeah I, I I put a gloss on that from two elements and of course there's every chance that I'm mixing these things up but I don't think I am in this instance um I was reading When Saturday Comes, which at that time was one of a burgeoning number of specialist fanzines, most related to particular clubs. Um, and I was going into sports pages in Charing Cross Road where they had a, a floor that uh, increasingly became essentially tiled by these fanzines. You had to sort of pick your way through like a, a cat crossing a, a kitchen floor uh, in order to, to get from one side of the shop to the other. And I'm pretty sure they're one of the things that was attractive about their tournament preview is they would have Dutch writers and German writers writing about the football, which certainly was not the case in mainstream media in uh, England. I mean, there was there was no Dutch writers, there was no um, German football experts who would be interviewed on what would then be, I think, Radio Two or you know, Sports Sports Extra or Sports Report on at, at uh, five o'clock on Saturday. Um, so I remember that there was an international dimension that came through. Uh, when Saturday comes in particular, and possibly one or two other fanzines that I may have picked up prior to uh, Euro 88. I think I'm getting that that right. They were certainly around before the World, uh, the World Cup in uh, Italia 90, but I think they were around in 88 as well. And the other thing that, that did penetrate the sort of business, not just of, of your kind of dedicated football fan, but your more casual fan, were England friendlies. And uh, these were big deals then. 
So yeah, it would be sports right. night. There'd be extended ha- uh, highlights. And you would see you know, Maradona in 79, I think, or maybe it was 81, was was brilliant in an England uh, uh, friendly. But I, I, I recall, um, I think Hullet played in an England friendly and was just striding from the back to the front of the field and we weren't sure where he was playing you know is he a libero or is he a center forward is he a midfield i remember that made a big impression obviously of course he he was extremely striking with the with the dreadlocks but then the other thing is he was captain i think of holland at 24 or something like this and then he did an interview at the end of the match now we weren't familiar in those days again it seems amazing to think from the perspective where we sit now, but we weren't used to having foreign players interviewed in English on on British television. You know, maybe some tennis players. You know, you'd have Bjorn Borg interviewed or something, but and maybe some Grand Prix drivers, you know, but not footballers. And Hullet gave this extraordinary interview where he was more laid back. He'd have been horizontal, and he was cracking jokes and making puns in English. And I remember the next day going in and saying, "Who, who is this bloke?" Who is he? And we would we would find that those England friendlies, as I say, much more prestigious, much bigger blots on the landscape, if you like, of, of football. Um, they did introduce us to players, and they did, I think, allow an early sight of of these, of particularly the new generation <clears throat> who, would, who would be coming through. So, I think when Saturday comes, and some of the fanzines would be one element, and the um, the uh, friendlies would be another bridge between, as you do say, what often felt like 86 ending and 88 beginning. And it's interesting on Hullet that going into the tournament, he's seen by a hell of a lot of people as not only Netherlands' best player, but the world's best player. Um, because it had a great season for Milan, Van Basten had been injured a lot of the time. Just there's a quote from David Lacey in the Guardian preview, basically says, um, more and more he's being acknowledged as the world's greatest footballer, better than Diego Maradona. You could argue a case for either in terms of the ability, but Hullet is the better man in the truest sense of the word. But his reputation was sky high, wasn't it? I think he'd yeah. have been in Milan for a year. Was age about 24, obviously. Yeah. Looked like he could just do anything. Spoke about 12 languages or whatever. Um, and I think you're right. That friendly is an important game because it's one of the reasons why the Netherlands was so highly, not necessarily fancied, but why everyone in England, certainly in the media coverage, was so excited about seeing them because they played really well at a tool draw. There's one goal where they kept the ball forever uh, before a diving header by someone, possibly Bosman, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, I, and I agree. Even I remember that as a kid, that friendlies were almost the equivalent now of a Nations League game in terms of yeah. and significance. You know, there were no sort of 11 subs or anything like that. Pretty much picked the best team, bar one or two. Um, so Full yeah, house. Uh, yes. Full house. Well, uh, yes and no, because... I just looked at that. Netherlands was 74,000, which is fine. Awesome. I remember my first, my first game at Wembley was Yugoslavia in 89. And another one, Czechoslovakia, just for Italian 90. The, the attendance for Czechoslovakia, which is the famous game where Paul Gascoigne got himself not only on the plane, but in the team by giving one of his greatest performances. The attendance was about 23,000. Amazing. And that's, that's a month before, two months before Italian yeah. 90. Yeah. yeah, wow. yeah on, on but, who but it... You're right, Netherlands... Yeah, yeah, sorry, gone. Yes, yeah, Cesar Minotti obviously won the World Cup with Argentina uh, in, in 78. Europe's single most outstanding individual of the last decade. So that that, that is a highlight, actually, especially with the, the European Championships being so, I, I guess, at that time associated with 
Michel Platini after his exploits uh, four <clears> years <throat> earlier were not there. Um, they didn't even come second in, in their qualifying. They barely won a game, did they? Yeah, one yeah, game at home to Iceland, I think. Maybe a bit of a hangover after '86 and the, the yeah, old team, but even so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, well let's let's do a Des Lynham thing then and just run through the eight. <laughs> now, this is still a tournament of eight teams. We'd have another one of these, of course, in 1992 in Sweden before um, they got the perfect formula in '96 and then proceeded to <laughs> um, um, more recently. Um, West Germany host nation. Um, a wee bit annoyed that they couldn't use Berlin's Olympiastadion, even though it was kind of falling down. It still had this kind of prestige because it was still technically East Germany, and they wouldn't let that be um, counted as as West Germany. Who knew? Eighteen months later, that would not be a talking point at all. Yeah. Um, Rob, this West Germany side are quite changed from um, that World Cup final in, in 86. Two World Cup finals in the trot, of course. Not a great Euros in 84, um, but, but a lot of those faces, uh, Rummenigger, um, Schumacher, the infamous um, Harold <laughs> Schumacher, Klaus Alofs, who I think was hoping to be there. He, he was injured late on. Felix Magat, um, all gone. Um, and you've got some younger replacements a very bright, young, blonde striker called Jürgen Klinsmann, um, little Olaf Kahn, and Jürgen Kohler, a young Jürgen Kohler. And you know, Beckenbauer was getting in the neck a wee bit. Paul Breitner was criticising his tactics. Always funny how former international colleagues have a, a real dig when, when their, their, their pals go into management. Um, but it's so, jacket and a sugarly peg, uh, re- remarkable as that that may be, after taking his, his side to um, a World Cup final, fighting back from 2 0 down, etc. etc. And of course, we go on to win the World Cup in two years after that. Um, so, a nice balance between mm, is this squad ready, too many young faces, as well as being the host nation and that, that kind of pedigree as well. It's an interesting kind of mix. Yeah, I think we have to be careful not to look at this squad through the eyes of 1990 because they became such an outstanding yeah. power team. I thought they were brilliant World Cup winners. But actually, at this point in time, yeah, they, they are kind of halfway in between. The 86 team, which Beckerbauer laughed, you know, how how the hell did we get to World Cup fight with these players? You had Klinsmann coming in, but I think you know, he played like four or five games. Kohler a bit impressive. I think, like you say, Olaf Tone was really um, highly rated. But they also had issues in goal because Schumacher had been banned, I think, because of his book. Uh, they didn't quite have a sweeper either. Um, I forget his name. Was it Hergard or someone? It was a quite an, an older guy anyway, who by all accounts was pretty creative, but not that amazing. Um, they were favourites, but I think it was mainly for two reasons. They were hosts and because they were West Germany. Um, but the results were so-so. I think, again, I think they had a dreadful crowd against Yugoslavia about a week before the tournament, like 17,000, 18,000. So there are still players there, you know, Rudy Vola, Mateus, of course, who we knew from 86, sort of probably we didn't quite know how good he was because in 86 he had mm. Mark Maradona, for example. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting. We'll, we'll talk about Italy later, who really did identify this tournament as a bridge to Italian 90 because obviously they were hosts. But actually it kind of worked out that way for West Germany, even though it wasn't their intention. Um, because you think the 80s was kind of a lost decade for them. And it shows how good they are that in that last decade they won a European Championship and reached two World Cup finals. It kind of yeah. was, um, and this is the last team of that. Which, but you can see in hindsight, you can definitely see 
a team emerging, but I'm not sure that was evident, particularly at the time. Um, certainly not before, and probably not really during the tournament either. They, they played pretty well, but um, you know, they, they were nothing like the team who were awesome at times in 1990. Gary, can you remember if that horrendous cliche that you can never write off the Germans had <laughs> taken? Taken root by 1988, or was that still to come? Did they become that kind of bogey, that bogeyman in, from from 1990 on? This was the this was the kind of one of the the high watermarks. I think the late 80s, beginning of the 90s of red top cliches, where you know it's come on, lads, we're going to win the tournament from England's perspective, and the Italians, you've got to be careful because they'll be very strong defensively and they'll be committing cynical fouls. And and you can't write off the Germans, particularly at home, um, would I'm sure. And my action is that was very much the, the, the view. Again, not really based on, on evidence because we didn't have a great deal of evidence unless you were sort of very assiduous in your reading and spoke fluent Glanville and not all of us spoke fluent <laughs> Glanville and still don't. And um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it was very much the view the Germans are on the side to beat uh, the Dutch have got the glamour and sort of come on to them and the Italians are, are going to be strong. And nobody took a blind bit of interest really in the USSR. I mean, these, these Russians... Uh, with the Ukrainian names that we didn't know at the time either, um, mm. were, were, were just, you know, sort of foreign interlopers. Um, a tournament that was set up for the, uh, the glamour boys of, uh, of the big footballing nations. So, yes, it was very much the case. I'm sure my memory is quite strong that, uh, yeah, don't write off the Germans and they're at home and, um, you know, they, they go in as, as much justified uh, tournament favourites. They were strong favourites, actually. I had a look at the odds. So West Germany, 7-4. to four. The next best is England and the Netherlands at 5-1. to one. So that's a pretty big advantage. Um, and odds like that I found fascinating because they are such a time goal, such a barometer at a time. Um, but I do think from everything I've read more than I remember, that it was based as much on them being hosts and as what they'd done than the actual quality of the team. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that cliche had kind of taken hold, I guess. I wonder about these cliches if, again, it is national broadcasters, national tabloids catering for the more and more casual viewer yeah. who needs everything simplified to bring them in. Yeah. They don't need to know, well, they might be playing a three at the back, actually, and this is going to cause some... They don't care. It's just make this as simple as possible, um, just to to to, to make um, make them plug into the festival, buy the papers, watch the coverage, because um, you don't really get that so much with. with and of course, in those in those days, coverage was so sparse, apart from yeah. the actual football. You know, five ten minutes before kickoff or yeah, or whatever. So they really didn't have time to go into the uh, the joys of a sweeper as against the flat back four. Yeah. There, there was one barometer that we haven't mentioned with. I think we all use as a kind of rule of thumb, which was how many players were playing in Serie A. And if you had a lot of players from your country playing in the Italian league, the chances are those players were going to be excellent because the, the Italian teams at that point were able to buy pretty much who they wanted through, I think, a combination of of their financial muscle and tax rules and various other things. So the three foreigner rule, as you've pointed out, Martin, wasn't quite in place yet. And so if you looked at a squad, and the Dutch are the obvious ones, but sometimes with Denmark and things, and you, you look and see which of their players were playing in Italy, you think, well, he's a player to look out for. Um, and 
you know, it's not based on any other evidence than the fact that that if a player was playing in Italy, chances are there were other leagues who wanted them, and the Italians had uh, decided to pay more money for them, and therefore had the benefit of their services. And it was actually after this tournament, wasn't it? I think the only German West German player in Italy at the time was Thomas Berthold, who I don't think was in the team. Rudy, Rudy Fala, Matthias Bray, and so on. Yeah, Rudy Fala. Not at the time he was. I don't Claudio. think. Oh, right. Wikipedia is suggesting otherwise, but um, no, <laughs> they may not be so. Oh, no, you're absolutely right. You're right. Was it? He was at Rome at that point. Um, so Germany had two, the Dutch had two, and, and the Danes had three and played in Serie A at that time. Obviously, things would change because Inter would get Andres Bremer and Lothar Matthias after yeah. this tournament. And again, that Klinsman, I think, might fall on the, the following year. I can't remember. Um, West Germany, the youngest squad at the tournament, 24.65 years for anyone who cares about that stuff. And just slightly, slightly older is Italy, Rob. You've mentioned that before. This, again, is a cleaning out and bringing in these young players. Paolo Maldini's 19 years old. Mancini's a young player at the time. Roberto Mancini, of course. Um, Giannini's there as well. Viali's, what, 23 and is considered, you know, the greatest Italian Strikers since since Riva, um, even some of the, the, the kind of old guards of of um, what, you know, Franco Baresi, what age is Baresi in year twenty four maybe? Um, yeah, about yeah, 21. yeah, slightly older, but not much. Twenty eight, so he's twenty eight years old. Um, yeah, so this is Ricardo eh, Ciro Ferrara. Sorry, he's twenty one. Ancelotti's twenty nine. A kind of um, elder statesman. They are absolutely looking ahead to two years this is a trial run we're going to be hosts this is massive um but still with such exciting talent around they were the other big side i guess in this group um i mean the the, the hype around viali was enormous you know it was enormous for italia 90 and i don't know if he was injured but scalacci obviously it was the player who, who subsequently led the line but the hype around Viali, I mean, partly it was, you know, how Airbane he was and at a time when all the jokes were footballers can't string two words together. There was this, you know, sort of playboy uh, Italian who could charm the birds from the trees and was pulling up uh, said trees in, in Serie A. But he was probably the most hyped player um, uh, of the of the foreign players, certainly more than Klinsmann, who was pretty much unknown oh, yeah. and only got five caps for Germany. Uh, but um, it, it set up expectations that Viali, you know, you look at his career and obviously there's an element of tragedy about his his uh, early demise now. But his career was absolutely fantastic, but somehow it never quite lived up to the hype mm. because the hype was just outrageous. Um, maybe he just gave lots of interviews to British journalists or maybe they were just keen to find someone who spoke English who didn't need a translator so they could get back to the bar as quick as possible and not have to wait for the uh, tape to be translated and all of that. But um, no, he, uh, he he was the standout name uh, amongst them and was, was on his way to what never quite became the top, certainly in, in, in uh, for Italy's uh, national side. Did this generation of Italian players, were they the first to blur the lines between club and country success and what mattered? Because, you know, it feels like before that you would not have been able to be seen as a great player without doing something significant for your country. I think that's changed now because obviously club football is so dominant. But in that era, they had so many great attackers in particular. You know, Mancini did very little for Italy. Viali had a mixed career. You know, there were others. Mm -hmm. Baggio was in and out. I don't know. It feels like 
because of the sheer volume of quality players that a lot of them are defined by club success. I mean, Badger Badger is different because of the USA 84, but he still spent a hell of a lot of time on the sidelines. You know, Zola struggled to get a game a lot of the time and so on. So maybe there's something in that. I mean, I you, you could say you could say possibly the same thing about Spain, and one could almost say it for the same reasons: is that Spain and Italy, for a, a long time, felt a little bit like sort of cobbled together countries. And there's still a lot mm. of, you know, there's the Catalans and there's the Castilian Spaniards, and there's the Lombardy in the north, and there's the south. And you know, if you recall, Scalacci was seen very much as as a kind of peasant from the south, mm. where Viali was a nobleman from the north, and stuff like this. So I think. That kind of um, internal view of of where a, a country sits in terms of its cohesion, um, you know, maybe I'm speaking out of turn here, but the Milanese, you know, how much how much sort of fellow feeling does a Milanese have with a Sicilian? Um, you know, I, I, especially then, I think it was it was possibly much more open to question, and therefore. The success of a Milan, a bit like a bit like the success of a Liverpool in Liverpool, is seen as more important than the success of an Italy. And I think that yeah. that's maybe why countries like Italy and Spain have have not been able to coalesce around around um, an eleven to deliver the success that the individual talents uh, deserve. Now, of course, one could say the same thing about England, but England have never had the same depth of playing quality that Italy and Spain have had. And and yet, you know, Italy and Spain took a long time before they were able to deliver on the uh, tournaments at national level in the same way as they delivered at club level. Maybe that's a bit of kind of hack sociology, but I think there's yeah. something in it. I wonder... Sorry, Sorry, I wonder just on you, rhyming off those Italian forwards there who didn't go on and be the main man for Italy and do, mm. you know, is so synonymous with Italy. I do wonder with international football sometimes whether there's a kind of paralysis by options for, for managers. It's not yeah. fantasy football. You, you, you need chemistry and you must be looking at all of these you know, fantastic players at your disposal. Um, how do we get the, the right blend? And, and maybe you start to second-guess yourself and take him back out the team and maybe put him in there um, instead of countries who have, oh, he's the boy, so he's going to play, he's going to get 60 caps or whatever, he's going to get a run and he's, he's going to be he's going to be our choice, a lot of confidence oh, yeah. that, that goes from that and, and just, you know, just becomes the absolute... Um, you know, um, synonymous player with that international team. Sometimes he just produced so many, he could only play 11 players, you know what I mean? You're not saying that Rice and Bellingham are the new Gerrard and Lampard, are you? There we are, yeah. Guess how how many goals Italy's leading scorer has in international football? At this time? Yeah. Oh, seven. No, forever, like, historically. Um, So obviously Messi has about 100, Ronaldo has 100 and so on. Yeah, it's going to be Reva with yeah, about 29, I suspect. 35, yeah, but that is extremely oh, low. That's yeah. extremely low for a great team, which kind of reinforces the point that they did have the tyranny of choice for a lot, a lot yeah. of the time. And the stereotype, Rob, that one goal will do. Of Group 1, um, are, are two sides... With a wee bit of history at this time, Spain and Denmark, they, of course, played in um, 
86 World Cup um, to devastating effect um, and also played, I think, in the semi-final of Euro 84. Um, Rob, you're the Danish expert here. There's a lot of quality in there. There's a lot of names that are famous, but they are now starting to just get a wee bit too too old, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, Rob, don't yes, make Mike exactly. cry they... when he listens. Don't make Mike cry. <laughs> They're not actually that old. A lot of them are kind of 29, 30, but they've got a lot of miles on the clock because a hell of a lot of them started at Ajax at the age of 17 and so on. Um, so they struggled to get out of the group. They scored, I think, four goals in six games. And yeah, they just yeah. got past Wales. There was a dodgy decision somewhere along the way. I actually think at the time, despite the struggle, I think people still expected a fair amount from them because, again, fresh memories of 86, where they had ended shambolically losing 5 1 to Spain, but they won a group of death in this kind of swashbuckling style. They had three players who started for PSV in the European Cup final, uh, two of whom were key players, even Nielsen, so Lerby. So I think, I mean, even, again, just look at the odds. They're, they're 11 to 1, so they're joint sixth with Spain, um, Ireland being the big outsiders. But yes, I think it, it wasn't as clear as it would become, but yeah, they had, apart from a couple of young players, like Michael Lauder being the obvious one, they had just got a bit older. I mean, so they still have Morton Oldsman sweeper, I think by this stage, 38. Um, so yeah, they had, and it's also, I just think, something kind of died in that team when they lost to Spain, the way they did it. Yeah. Um, this kind of peculiar humiliation um, where they were thrashed, but they kind of weren't thrashed really in the game. Um, and there was all this kind of fallout about whether the Danish mindset of, you know, not not thinking too much of yourself and kind of filtered into subconscious, whether they missed this great chance, if not to win a World Cup, then certainly to get to the semi-final where they would have played, as Laudrup said, then we would have played Maradona. Didn't say Argentina, then we would have played Maradona and that would have yeah, been us. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, they, they essentially they had grown weary, if not necessarily kind of completely old by, certainly not by modern standards, but yeah, they, they were a tired team. In the World Cup, uh, in the, sorry, the World Soccer preview, it's a kind of, it, it's now or never. This is the last, this is the last mm -hmm. dance for a lot of these, these players. Um, I guess with that in mind that, you know, World Cups are, very difficult. Here's an eight-team tournament. Um, yeah, this is this is this is your 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 chance, your boys. Um, Gary, any thoughts on, on, on Denmark? Where a, a question I can ask either of you really, because you'll both have some expertise on it, is the hmm. name that screams out to me that's missing is Brian Loudrop. Um, I don't think he was too young. He would have been what nineteen or something. Was he just not picked or was he injured? I mean. It does look an aging team, but if you've got a player of his quality, if they're, they're good enough, they're old enough, surely. I mean, Michael's 23. He's only a couple of years or so younger than Michael, isn't he? He's still he's about four. He had played for them at the time, but yeah, I suspect it was just that he hadn't developed to the point where... I mean, his brother was so precocious that he was a regular 18, but I don't think Brian was quite at that stage. No, to be honest, I don't even know why. So he he yeah. didn't go abroad. Yes, you're right. He didn't go abroad until the 89 when he went to Bayer yeah, Erdingham. But yeah. yeah. I, and the other thing, I suppose, is it was a 20-team squad, which looks really small now. So we think three keepers. They didn't have that much leeway. Um, yeah, I, I'd have to look at who else they had as the backup strikers. But it's not something I've ever thought of as a kind of a particular oversight or anything. 
Maybe it was, he, I don't know. But I don't no, he only made his that. debut. He'd only made his debut in 87. Um, he's still still playing at home. But he, yeah, he, I, again, these these names. And, and Rob, I think you're right, only 20, 20 mm. players in there. Um, two goalkeepers, I presume. Um, therefore, it does it does limit that. Um, but Brian would get his date four years later, of course, when they, 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 they won the bloody thing. Um, Spain... Uh, yeah, again, um, they were finalists uh, four years before. Um, did the USSR defeat Spain, Rob, in, in, in Mexico? Oh, no, it was, um, it should have been USSR oh, beat Denmark. No, no, it, uh, Spain, so Belgium beat the USSR and Spain beat Denmark. So the kind of classic quarterfinal yeah, never yeah. happened. Of course, yeah. Belgium beat Spain on penalties uh, after one all, I think. Yeah, I mean, Spain had done that. They'd obviously been in the final in 84 when I think they were pretty yeah. physical. I mean, this is, they're kind of developing into the team they would become in terms of style, but they were obviously, this was the start of the period where Spain would always be tipped and it always let you down mm-hmm. most of the time. Um, they had really good players like Michel, who was emerging, but Trade obviously on him that form. But um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think they were seen as a, heavyweight at all really that that certainly looked the easier group west germany italy really good sides and i think spain and denmark were seen as much weaker whereas in england it was seen wrongly as it turned out as two from three well not quite wrongly but basically ireland was seen as a make it it was really hard to pick two from three yeah it's been one of these and there are a couple who get to this competition by the skin of their teeth um, I, I think they were very fortunate, and they had to give thanks to. Um, That's right, it's the Austrian, Austrian goalkeeper, yes. yeah, Austrian goalkeeper Klaus Lindenberger, and an incredible save from a, a Georgi Haji ninety-second minute blaster, um, in in their um final qualifying game in, in Vienna. And if that had gone in, um. Spain would have uh, would have been watching watching the house, and that's the thing with these eight team tournaments. The, yeah. the, the, the countries that they fought, fast forward to Sweden and Italy, you're going to be World Cup finalists mm-hmm. two years later, semi finals two years before. Don't play their France. Um, obviously, haven't made it the, the, this time. They wouldn't make it to Italian ninety either. Um, but it, it really, really did cut that down, which makes Ireland's. Um, presence here, Scotland's presence four years later, maybe even that 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 wee bit more, um, that wee bit more special. But you're right in, in that group, Group One, it's it's two teams, and well, that's how it would turn out. Can we turn our attention nearly fifty minutes into this recording to <laughs> to, to Group Two? Um, Welcome to Nesson Dolan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll start with the Dutch. You, you know, the, you know, they they have a country that they are a club that are European champions. They have another. Um, club who you know, runners up in that cup winners cup final. They have two players in that 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 um, Milan team that just won the Scudetto. Um, interesting, and again in in the world soccer preview, um, this is why Holland will not only look to Hulet but to top marksman Jan Bosman as mm. well as Ronald Koeman, um, um and and some of the other other players. Not Marco van Basten, but John Bosman was the the go-to Dutch striker that they would look to, to lean on. And van Basten had played 11 Serie A games and scored three goals that season. 
He, of course, is going to change his career over the course of the summer and then be explosive for, for Milan as he was for, for the Netherlands that uh, in this tournament. But that that struck me as odd guys that um it's who that's dominating of course that 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 he's he's a bit older than van basten um that that made perfect sense um but he's not getting quoted here in the may of 88 as we're looking forward to this i think van basten started the first game as a substitute yes he right? did yeah that's right yeah. bosman played yeah 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 exactly um Bosman hadn't had that many caps either. He'd scored a few. They were, I mean, they were slightly lucky to qualify because they had this strange incident where they beat Cyprus. Was it Cyprus about eight 0 It was Cyprus. <laughs> they beat them eight 0 but there was a bomb thrown on the. Pit. Yeah, like there is a bomb. It's yeah. ridiculous, isn't it? A smoke bomb. Look at it on YouTube. We'll make yeah. that make that absolutely clear. And yeah, but it blows up you, right by the goalkeeper. The goalkeeper is yeah affected, shall we say? Um, <laughs> what UEFA should have done was award Cyprus the win. Which I think would hand control of that group back to Greece. Um, but what UEFA did not do was hand Cyprus the win. They said, "Oh, we'll play it behind closed doors in Amsterdam," um, and the Dutch won four 0 and therefore made that um, that that group pretty much theirs. So uh, yet again, a, a, another country that life could have been very, very different, or, or history could have been very, very my, different. My um, visual memory is very weak, but I have a vision of it being an orange smoke bomb. Um, I don't know if that's right, because if it was, it would be very Just Stop Oil. That yeah. say, oh, it's there again. <laughs> I think a massive bag of water. Orange, but, uh, there is a pod, yeah, by the way, uh, in um, near misses in qualification for international tournaments and how yeah, those tournaments could, could, could look. Oh, it's is, just yeah. so, especially in the old the olden days, yeah. but, but 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 previously, you know who's going to tournaments yeah. now. Um, it's harder to miss out than it is to get to, to the Euros. Um, but there's so many stories, there's so many sliding doors um, that, that, that's kind of fascinating. But yeah, um, can you boys remember then, you, you talked about that, that friendly at, at Wembley, those things are, they, they do make an impact, especially when you're, you're not, as I said, these these players are not part of your, your sporting wallpaper. Um Second favourites, you say, Rob, uh, the Dutch just joined with England? Joint, yeah, joined second favourites in England, yeah. And there's certainly a huge amount of goodwill towards him in the English press, um, yeah. which I guess was partly residual from the 72. It's the first time since 1980 they qualified for a major tournament. Yeah, yeah. Uh, seems unthinkable, but, you know, kind of it, well, it did happen, yeah. New generation, built around Hullet at the time. I think Ronald Koeman as well had scored over 20 goals that season. Yeah. So there was a lot of talk about him. Um I don't know how highly regarded Rijkaard would have been then. I mean, it became pretty clear how good he was uh, playing at centre-back with Koeman, but I, I don't actually know what his reputation was like beforehand. Um, where was he? Was it Zaragoza? Sporting. Right? He was in Sporting. Oh, OK. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, that's he, right. He got and to then... Milan that summer. He got to Milan that summer. So he must have been well thought of. Was there still... By '88, and you, you, they, they've, they've been in the wilderness, as you, as you said. They've not been in an international tournament for eight years. But was there still this residual? Oh, they yeah. should have won, and so oh, oh, yes. at least '74 or '78. And is that can again, you're talking about casual viewers. Apart from the England game, or or if you're Irish, apart from the Irish game, um, that we'd we'd like to see them do well at some oh, point. Oh, the in yeah. in England the yeah. three most international sides are obviously the boys of sixty six, the Brazilians of nineteen seventy, and the Dutch of uh, seventy four. 
um, backed up by 78 as well when they lost to the villainous uh, Argentina in front of the Junta. So there was enormous goodwill, and they'd been they'd been missed, and and the Dutch were back, you know, with the with the fluorescent orange shirts, with the total football, with the the legacy of Cruyff, with the Cruyff term being shown on telly every five minutes and stuff like this, you know, a question of sport would have some Dutch player on or something. And, and it was, um, I mean, I think that's probably still the case now, but it seems crazy to talk about nostalgia over a period of 14 <laughs> years, but the, the seventh, the line between 74 and the nostalgia for the uh, wrong side of 74 in 88 was still strong. And, yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of people's second teams were the, the Dutch, and so there was a there was an element of equivocation. I think when England lost, people were disappointed. But if we're going to lose to anybody, let's lose to the Dutch, and let's lose to these balletic players like Van Basten and, and Hullet. So um, it was definitely the case that uh, they were drawing on a, a deep reserve of goodwill, which I suggest is still there today uh, towards the Dutch national side. It might have helped if England hadn't lost to everyone else as well. But yeah, yes. um, Renus Meekles coming back as coach also, just made an obvious tie with 74, um, just kind of added to the whole link. So yeah, yeah. The, the impression, again, I'm kind of going on what I've read because I don't really remember, but reading the broadsheet certainly, there's just a, a huge amount of excitement about what they might do. I don't think they're seen as necessarily nailed on winners or anything. I think it's more that they're going to um, yeah, just enrich the tournament one way or another, really, which, but which if they the... absolutely did. If those Dutch players were all playing in a West Germany kit, it would have been all better off. Nobody's got any chance to beat them. Uh, it mm. was the, the sense that the Dutch find a way to lose. Yeah, they have the internal arguments, they have the bad, bad luck, they have Renson Brink hitting the post or, or something that, that made us feel that, that the Dutch were, were had a vulnerability. I mean, I think... I think it became obvious that they were the the best squad. They were the most talented squad uh, there. You only need to watch them for for ten minutes to see that they were playing football from the, the future, uh, with or indeed in Holland from the past um, by you know, possess, the possession game, the probing for chances, the incisions uh, by speedy forwards, the strength, the size, all of those things. And, you know, it wasn't resented as much. If there were any other side, that kind of stuff might be resented. But somehow we thought, well, you know, they deserve it. They they should yeah. have had it in 74. They probably should have had it in 78. So, you know, let's, let's give them it in 88. The excitement about them potentially winning it was enhanced by the fact they had a load of players from the European champions and two players from the team that just won the best league in the world. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so you kind of felt like maybe, I mean, you kind of have to be careful with these narratives and big wise after yeah. the event and so, but it felt like they were learning how to win. Yeah. Yeah. Renus Mikkels is, a, is, is an interesting chap because his, his teams play the way they do and are famed for aesthetics, maybe rather than necessarily um, output because, the, you know, those that, that 74 Dutch team, for example, did not win, but captured hearts and minds and all that. Um but he wasn't a poet in the training ground. He was quite quite a tough cookie from what I understand. And certainly in when he was manager of Cologne or Cologne as we would say, um the players off the record <laughs> used to yes. say that he was punishing them for the Nazis really in terms of his his drills <laughs> and his training training ground kind of discipline. Um and it, it just seems very, very um 
in Congress with the kind of football that he managed to 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 create. He's a very very tough tough guy. And Pierre Lebowski was was moaning. He said, "I'll give you an extra ball. You can kick around your garden. Basically, you, you, you're you're going to be here to 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 join a team and and make sure that that team kind of moves together and 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 uh, and all that." Um, it's a he's a weird kind of paradoxical chap. Yeah, and yet one thing he did do, and I I, I don't know that much about this. So I might be slightly wrong, but he seemed to be able to. Um, achieve harmony in a Dutch squad at a major tournament, which was very rare. Certainly that, that group of players had loads of problems in 1990, obviously, and subsequently. Um, so quite how he did it, I don't know, but it certainly seemed to work. Um, I mean, they rode their luck at times. They're not sometimes, I mean, spoiler, they win the, the fucker. But um, yeah, they're not always a great team, we think. But um, but ultimately, yeah, I mean, they, they are... Like you say, everything about the team is so persuasive from the kit to the style of play to certain goals and moments. Um, yeah, it's hard not to be seduced by the whole thing. Really. There's, there's a talking about Nichols, there's a quote, I think, from Jonathan Meads, who's a big fan of kind of Dutch North, North European architecture, the austerity of it, and how it's put together. I remember watching one of his programs, and I think somebody will find I'm misquoting him now that, that when one Dutchman meets another Dutchman. They form a company and they're extremely successful until they meet a third Dutchman. And then the trio of them split into two factions of a two and one and feud nonstop. And therefore the company comes to a halt. And um, I think there's, there's something in that in every Dutch squad. We obviously know about what was going on with Cruyff in 74, later pulling out in 78. But I think the the skill one needs as a as a manager of a Dutch team and possibly of a Dutch enterprise is the, is the ability to hold it together and then just let the talent come through. But uh, once once you lose that discipline of everybody pointing in the same direction, they're going to be pointing at every every piece of the compass, and then you you you're left with with all this talent that's veering off in all kinds of different directions. just want to say one other thing is that mm. Arnold Muren was in this squad. I don't know how much he played. But no, he played a lot, it, yeah. Well, Regular, it's, yeah. It's another example because Muren and Thiessen at Ipswich were, were so much admired and, and loved as uh, as foreign players playing the English League. And you know, no, no opposition fan would ever dream of, of booing either of those two because they were so admired. They were kind of the equivalent of Zola later when he came to, to Chelsea in that somehow managed to unite all football fans in admiration, both for their work, but also for the way they conducted themselves. And I think it's just an example of, of how the Dutch endeared themselves to, to casual English fans. Mm. Speaking of English fans, let's speak about England. Um, in terms of qualification, my word, this was this was quite impressive. Um, especially how romanticised Yugoslavia are from around this era, and certainly from from ninety onwards. Um, England absolutely eviscerated them, um, and looked. Looked value for that that second favourite tag, Rob. I think, however, that belied, um, especially the Liverpool season with with Barnes and Beardsley, and, and obviously Lineker's there, Brian Robson's there, blah blah blah. But they, you've got some injury concerns going in here. Terry Butcher is missing. I think that's a huge loss. He was desperate to be back in. It was tested. I think he he broke his leg um, in the November at Ibrox, um, and. 
he thought he would be back for um, this pretty pretty comfortably. I think he, he tested his leg out in April and it just was nowhere near strong enough and he, he had to kind of sit it out, which meant you get a really young centre-back pair. I think Tony Adams was only 21 or, or, or something like that around that time, Rob. Um, and Brian Robson is always an injury concern. And as we would find out, Gary Lineker's not exactly 100% uh, in terms of his health. And I guess one of these stories where on paper everything looks the way the bookies are reading it, um, but there's a, a kind of untold story there. Yeah, I think Lineker was a big one. It was appetite he had, but no one realised yeah. at the time. A butcher, of course, was a huge loss. Um, yeah, just because his experience, his quality and everything else. I mean, Adams, even by that stage, Adams was seen as a future England captain. He was really highly regarded. I mean, Alex Ferguson was already trying to woo him to Man United, basically. But he was also accident-prone, um, even at that stage. This was pre-Donkey Chance, I think, but he'd already made, like, in the February, made a high-profile error on TV, which in those days was a, a big thing because live matches were so rare. Um, but no, they, they did look good. There was real optimism, partly because Robson was actually okay. There was, seemed to be no problems on the horizon with him. Um, <clears throat> Beersley and Barnes, Barnes in particular, have been incredible. Um and actually, the, the talk before the tournament was that for once England's strength was their attack, yeah. which is partly because of the absence of Butcher, but also just the sheer quality they did have. What we know now, of course, is they never quite worked out to balance it. You know, Barnes, Waddle, Beasley, Lineker, uh, never mind Robson and Hoddle, because Neil Webber played a little bit as well, which seems strange looking back, but actually done pretty well and was very highly regarded at Nottingham Forest. Um, Gary will have a more kind of vivid memory of time. Time, I suspect, but from everything I kind of read and understand and remember, I think that there was concern about the group and there was concern about playing Ireland first, although the concern seemed to be that they might draw the game, not that they could lose it. Uh, but I think, I think they, I, I don't think, you know, we look back at say 2006 and think how ridiculous the media were getting carried away, or the typical English hubris, you know, a player has landed in Germany, basically the World Cup winners have landed. Um, I don't think that was the case here. That's the impression I get anyway. I think it was a pretty reasonable, sober assessment based on what had happened in the previous two years. Um, but yeah, Gary, I suspect you're... Well, I think, the, I think there was significant optimism, but the get-out-of-jail card for those who didn't want to indulge in the hubris was that so much turned on the state of Brian Robson's body um, in that people would say, oh, we've got a real, real chance as long as Robson plays. And I don't think that's entirely unfair because his personality, his drive, his uh, stature as a player left a bigger hole than just a, a kind of leading central midfield player. So I think it would have been in full overdrive had there not been those those doubts about Robson, who by this stage was into his 30s and um, was injury prone. And even if he, even if he wasn't injured with Robson, the whole way he played sort of invited the suggestion he was going to be injured at any any given moment you know he was he was always one to you know stretch for that ball that probably was only 30 70 in his favor you know he, he didn't obviously back down of any challenges throwing himself around and he really played a percentage game which as we later you know find out found out with Gaza is, is not usually a, a way to to play tournament football um you you just can't do that kind of thing with the with the um, compression of of the scheduling. So it's always that 
kind of feeling and, and there was optimism that we you know it, nobody talked about golden generation the phrase wasn't there but if you look at that those attacking players it was a golden generation the extraordinary depth of talent uh, to choose from there so i think some of the optimism was well founded as i say in 86 we lost to the greatest player that i've ever seen uh scoring the greatest goal i've ever seen and a goal that you know var would have chalked off without a second look these days um so we were and they went on to win the tournament so they we were unlucky then in 1990 we lost in the semi-final uh to the winners again in a very tight game so bracketing 88 were two performances that are probably better than than appear in popular imagination so it wasn't entirely irrational to say that that england were second favorites but just there wasn't enough pace at the back there wasn't enough nous enough know-how and just that persistent feeling whether it's true or not just the the traditional sense that the England players were limping into a tournament, sometimes literally at the end of a long season, where other nations were sprinting towards it uh, as their main objective. And whether that's true or not, I can't back it with evidence, but it does seem to have felt like that. No, well, England would have played English players, that would have been a 42-game season, I think, Division 1, and I'm pretty sure Serie A was a 30-game season, I think back then a couple of points England were top scorers in qualification 19 six games which was it kind of unprecedented and added to the optimism but actually in hindsight there were a couple of warning signs so they were well beaten in Germany 3-1 in September 87 one of Germany's few good performances actually in the year leading up to it and that tool draw with the Netherlands in March even though they kind of did okay um and it was a decent enough result I think People who were there, I remember talking to Chris Freddie, who was there, and he said there was just a, a golfing class that was yeah. uh, was just so obvious. And you think at the time you can get by, you know, with English qualities and so on. And to some extent they did. They played pretty well against the Netherlands in the, in the tournament itself and were very unlucky. But there, there was, I think now we realise that having all those attacking players didn't mean that they were going to be able to do it. And this was the same problem for the golden generation, really. They could do it to a certain level. When you get up against real quality, there wasn't a cohesion and there wasn't a shape that worked. Um, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, yeah we're well. Can I say one other thing, which often doesn't get mentioned, but I think oh. it is important, is that these summer tournaments were played on pristine pitches that were just mm. perfect for ball players, whereas... Those 42 games, 30 of them were played on ploughed fields full of mud. You know, uh, the, the difference in the uh, top flight Division One Premier League now pitches uh, compared to summer tournament pitches was absolutely enormous in those days, even 15 years ago. I think some of the improvement in uh, performances in summer tournaments since has been down to the fact that the quality of pitches we play on now in England year-round is so much better than it was then. These sneaky Continentals with their, their, their well-kicked. <laughs> there is something in what, what, what Rob says about the, the, the number of games. I think the Germans have a phrase that the, the English are lions in winter and, and lambs in the summer. Yeah. They, they're just done. Yeah. Um, we will get into it, of course, as this series develops. Um, but just looking through that England squad there, looking at one of the 4-4-2 selections that are there, who's controlling the midfield? Rijkaard's going to step out of that 
that yeah. three-man defence and, and just come into midfield and set a tempo and, and do all of that. They've got an England midfield with Trevor Stephen, Glenn Hoddle, um, Brian Robson and, and John Barnes. Um, I'm not in, there's a lot of attacking either intent there or just perpetual motion in, in the, the, the case of Robson. Um, I know he's not a, a huge Nessendorma favourite, but that's where you need a wee number five like, like Ray Wilkins. They're just slowing everything down, keeping control and well, keeping things ticking on. Is he even in the squad? No, the other the player who was in the squad to do it was Peter Reid, but he was 31 then. And, of course, he committed the sin of Maradona running past him to score the goal. Well, I'm here to tell you that Maradona ran past quite a few players and scored quite a few goals. But somehow that hung like a, a millstone round Peter Reid's neck. But Reid, at that point, he wasn't as quick as he was when he'd won the title for Everton three years uh, earlier. But um, that 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 could have been a job he he could do but he, he was i don't think he was selected um yeah. but you know he he i don't think he was very often after the argentina game he only got 13 caps just, in total just as a quick aside 13 caps that's ridiculous the germany west germany game i mentioned it's worth having a look at the highlights just for england's goal which comes from a vicious two-foot challenge from reed he does yeah. like man and ball now it's a straight red card five weeks in the jug but of course in those days play continues and i think lineker scores it's hilarious yeah. And Peter Shelton, I think, would get his 100th appearance, I think, during this, this tournament, which is wild. Yeah, he did. And and there, there's your problem there, because England's real number one uh, was sitting on the bench, as we'll, I'm sure I'll mention. Um, <laughs> um, the Soviet Union were the oldest team there. Again, um, guys, they were... Um, very prescient from Kier Radnichir. He said, you know, the, the, the Soviet Union, no doubt, um, will start like a train and then progressively run out of steam and nerve just when it matters. Well, um, they, they, spoiler, they, they, they may well do that. Um, they were um, impressive in Mexico, certainly in that heat. I, I'm sure that they, they, they were a, a team to be feared and considered and, and taken very seriously. Um, someone mentioned the, the, the Ukrainian um, influence there. Of course, this was dominated by that that fantastic Dynamo Kiev side um, who were knocked out the first round of the European Cup that season by, I'll just check my notes, uh, it was Rangers actually. <laughs> um, but they, they, they were um, they clearly um, a, a super team. All you needed to do was just change the dimensions of the pitch and, and there you have it. Um, Again, was that maybe something, right, okay, they've, they've maybe had their, their time as a slightly older team, um, or was it an unknown still? Because, you know, when, when Rangers were drawn against Kiev, it was, I think my, my friend's father said, very much like Walter Smith prescient, um, um, <laughs> Red Star, tactical Red review Star. of Red Star Belgrade, were fucked. Um <laughs> But it was name only, and it was it was legend only, and it was uh, you, you're only seeing them in Mexico again. You're not seeing these players week in week out. Did they carry that 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 mystique with them? Um, the, the kind of fear of the unknown. Because remember, there is a wall up in a city in Europe at this time. That this that this is a different kind of Europe, Gary. Yes, they were the big red machine that frightened people in ice hockey, and they were mysterious uh they were all playing behind an iron curtain that is only just a metaphor as you point out and um yeah we didn't we didn't know uh, but i i think it's fair to say that they just didn't get the respect um whether they got the respect from 
opposition players and coaches, I don't know, but they certainly can get the respect from fans. And when one looks at the team of the tournament, one finds that the beaten finalists have, um, let me just look here, that's right, no representatives at all in the team of the tournament. So, you know, they were, they were different, they were supposedly kind of robotic they they lacked the kind of flair they they all seemed to be scuttlers who were running around there was no personalities all the cliches of of the kind of grim but that, Russian that was the bear world, though, were in it? play that was the um, world wasn't it yeah even things yeah. like i mean even drago rocky got kind of tied into the whole image yeah, yeah. Years earlier. it's interesting i'm talking about the squad uh, being one of the oldest, apart from Dasai, of all the names that are really familiar, are kind of 27 and, or yeah. and under. So Belanov, Zavarov, uh, Kuznetsov, Mikhailichenko. Mm. It's quite interesting that... Um, yeah, Lenikov, 26. Wit, yeah. I mean, they, they were... I mean, Things like kickoff two and sensible soccer came a few years later, but that kind of neat computerised football is the, the kind of image we had of them. Either that or Vasily Rats just roofing one from 40 yards. Um <laughs> And they were, yeah, they've done, they, I mean, they, they, like Denmark, were really frustrating in Mexico because they'd started brilliantly and lost the game. They should never have lost. Belgium just peppered them with high balls and beaten 4-3 in the second round. Um, so, yeah, I think there was a decent amount of expectation. But I do think most people thought England and the Netherlands would go through that group with USSR as kind of dangerous contenders, but not likely qualifiers. I mean, actually, you can get... Uh, I'm just having a look at specific odds to win the group. So England 13 to 8, <clears throat> Holland 15 to 8, USSR 5 to 2, Ireland 11 to 1. So, yeah, that kind of is a fair barometer, I think, of what people expected. Well, you got but all they could play. Everyone knew, everyone knew they could play. Everyone well, knew they this, were. This is what the pundits would say, you know, and the because they knew nothing about them. And it was hard to find stuff out, to be fair. And um, they would come out with cliches like they're going to be difficult to beat, they're going to be well organized, they're going to be fit, everyone's going to know their job, going to take some breaking down, and all this kind of stuff. All of which is just a, a smokescreen for saying I don't know what they're going to be like. And um, we, should... we, we weren't really that much wiser at the uh, at the end, to be honest. We should also remember they were kind of European Championship royalty at this stage. Yeah, one, 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 and like two or three finals was it? Yeah. Albeit before all, all up to nineteen seventy. Two, I think. Um, but even so, they did. Have, I mean, you're only talking about a 28 year old tournament. Yeah. They would yeah. certainly have far greater pedigree than England at that stage. And but England didn't fact. always take it as seriously as they were by the 80s. I mean, it was. Didn't it, take it, it seriously this time either, by the way. But it was. It, it didn't hold the kind of standing in the calendar that it, that it yeah. does today, uh, right up until about 1980, I would suggest. Do you think? Um, I don't know. I, I said, what about 72 and Netzer and West Germany? Well, it, it was for them, but it was it felt was. to be kind of their tournament a little bit. It wasn't, I mean, it's it's English exceptionalism, and I'm not defending it. Is, it is that English exceptionalism. What, what I would like to to look at going, going through this series and just maybe assess from, again, this casual viewer and, and mm. on these islands, whether this tournament, that goal at the end mm. catapults this particular tournament into that that kind of stratosphere and that, that, that greater consciousness and a bit more glamour. Um, because when we get into the 90s, there is an argument, certainly into the 21st century, there's definitely an argument that the Euros, a 16-team Euros, is 
I know we've, we don't have Brazil and Argentina, but in terms of concentrated power and and quality, it just crammed into this 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 one event. There's a far better competition. It's a far stronger competition um, from top to bottom than than the World Cup can ever be because it's too diverse and too desperate, um, desperate and, and, and whatever else. And well, I just wonder whether Van Basten launches launches European European football because we know what's going to come soon. Um, and where the European Cup's going to go, and where, where European football's going to go, um, and this, this, just this glamour, this accessible glamour, because you're going to see a lot of it on your screens. You, you, you are going to see Italian football very quickly. You're going to see a lot of European football very quickly, and this, this may be the launch pad of that. If, if well, not, Euro, Euro '84 was not covered live on British yeah. television. Mm. There's the, there is the, the jump cut there from not being live on European television to everybody talking about Van Basten's goal with the water cooler on the Monday uh, afternoon. And such drama as well. Um, and Hullet's header, which is an extraordinary course, piece of television. But, but that's will, the final. That's coming up later. We'll get to that at the end of this. Um, okay, one more team to go. Just there for the beer, apparently. But, of course, not. Um, <laughs> Republic Ireland, they were... Well, this is their first ever tournament. Um... Uh, appearance, uh, a very good 1987. This was, mm. this was a team well-drilled. Um, we would probably call it pressing now. I don't think it was given mm. any particular glamorous name at that time, but they were going to work hard and they were going to really, really put you under pressure um, if you they were happy, I think, for the other team to have the ball. I think that's probably fair to say. Um, but I think it does look a wee bit like that. Like, like, like pressing now, Rob, in the way that they the, the, the Charlton would, would set them up. Very aggressive, very tenacious. Um Another entrant to this tournament who, on a normal night, at the end of qualifying, wouldn't have been there. Bulgaria needed a point at home to Scotland and Sophia. And Gary Mackay pops up. And Scotland don't have a great record and, and you know, Eastern Bloc oh, uh, trips. And Gary Mackay pops up um, with a winner, uh, which, which sends the Republic of Ireland through. Um, and the legend of... Charlton, because he's going to be at the World Cup, of course. They'd miss out in Sweden, but they, they, they'd obviously be in America. Um, this is this this gets starts from a, a boy from Hearts. It's exactly, and it was a late win as well, wasn't it? Like yeah, 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 yeah. I'd love to know how they followed it because I get maybe it was on in Ireland. I guess they might put it on Ireland. Um, yeah, Jack Charlton is interesting. I'm, I'm loath to call him a football visionary, but actually there are elements that he introduced a really interesting context of modern football pressing obviously he was also the one of the first people i can ever remember talking about potentially fullbacks now i think his idea was slightly different about what fullbacks should do but he did say i think it's after usa 94 before that fullbacks are pretty something like the most underused attackers on the pitch or the players who can have the most space now obviously he didn't have you know dennis Irwin or terry phelan playing central midfield but it's still kind of interesting he's what he saw the game through completely independent eyes, which is always kind of admirable, however much their football was kind of, you know, um, quite gruelling to... What was that the, a line Paul Doyle used? Something like hard, hard to watch and gruelling to play against or maybe the other way around. But anyway, yeah, they, no, their record was really good going into the tournament. Uh, I think it was eight wins in nine or something, but um, some good players, some really good players like Paul McGrath, albeit we've had his injury problems, lots of Liverpool players. Um... Getting slightly older, I think there was a whole issue with Liam Brady. I think he was suspended from the first two games. And they didn't chant humiliate him by taking him off yeah. after half an hour in a friendly or something, which actually was a quite a poignant thing about that in a recent Brady doc, I think. He pulled out a letter chart and written him. Um, 
basically apologizing and saying, you know, I never meant to hurt you, blah, blah, blah. Um, but yeah, but they were seen as rank outsiders, but I do think they were seen as awkward and particularly for England and particularly in the first game, I think. Well, this is it, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's, and if you've got them third game, you would think that's fine. They're gone. And whether that would happen, they don't know, probably not because they acquitted themselves really well. But I think it was seen as a, it's difficult because our understanding of those kind of awkward games, particularly against Ireland, which will become a recurring theme for the next sort of five years, didn't really kind of know, but uh, but it was definitely a, fe- a slight feeling of trepidation um, because of the familiarity. It just it just felt like a kind of I know it's a cliche, but it did feel like an awkward FA Cup tie for England. Uh, that's, that's exactly it. Yeah, you, you, your favourites, but you know them. You know them very well. You know what you're you're, you're going to get, um, and that that especially first game up that that presents just a, a, a bit of a nightmare scenario, Gary. Really. Yeah, um, particularly because you know Wimbledon had beaten Liverpool, you know the, the yeah, crazy point. gang and the culture club. So there was all that sort of stuff sort of lurking behind. You know they're going to fight for every ball. It's going to be scrappy. They'll be on at the referee. Big Jack will be on the touchline, cracking jokes one minute, and berating the uh, officials the next. And it, it, it just the the cliche was and is it was potential banana skin, and boy did we skid on it. And I don't think. I don't think he really came came back from that. It didn't need much for the the Dutch um, to, you know, they they scored and I think England equalised in the second game. But you could see the belief was draining away from England. And you know, fair play to the the Irish. They played to their strengths. Uh, England should have been able to combat it, but um, you know, they 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 didn't. And I think the balloon burst quite early on England's hopes uh, for success. Stop. Stop spoiling it, Gary. It's oh, interesting yeah. to look back at the squad, though, because Ireland's kind of achieved plenty in that kind of six to eight year period. But actually, there are some really good players in this squad. Yeah. Albeit, you have to remember where they are at that stage in their career. So, you know, Brady's past his best and Charlton doesn't trust him. You've got Brady, uh, Ronnie Whelan, Kevin Cheney, who you adore, of course, Gary. Yeah. Uh, Paul McGrath. Was Mark Lawrence in there? No, Mark Lawrence would have retired by then. But these are decent footballers. Um, Ray Hout, of course, is a really fine player. Mm-hmm. Like Liverpool. Even actually, I'd forgotten John Sheridan was around that early, albeit not in the in the team as far as I can remember. But yeah, they had plenty of pretty decent players. How, how many? I mean, I know it's a cliche. But how many would have got in England starting eleven? You name that. McGrath, McGrath would have McGrath done definitely. Um, maybe maybe Houghton or the Trevor for the yeah. for the reasons we we maybe just mentioned. To be honest, yeah. Um, but then that's a dangerous thing to look at, isn't it? Because I know. Totally. I know. Particularly when it involves home nations and the relationship between countries and so on. Um, But no, fair point. England did, yeah. You're not going to win anything with big Tony Cascarino up front, are you? (laughs) Well, well, how many times have we been in tournaments where where the the, the joke has has suddenly been um, overturned very, very quickly? Um, Absolutely. That just reminds one quick, that reminds me when England lost 4 1 to Germany in 2010 i forget who it was but some commentator said basically said that none of the germans were getting the england team which was <laughs> and it, which was just nonsense because this had people like a young mez Erzil, thomas muller bastian schweinsteiger but that goes back to english exceptionalism of course yeah but it means that even before twitter there were still people saying stupid things in the public I, domain i suppose we've all been guilty i'm sure i have as well at times but yeah oh, it's worth just mentioning but don't want to dwell on it because it's boring but the context of hooliganism yeah. It's pretty big at the time. It was in West Germany. England was still banned. There'd been big trouble, I think, at the Netherlands friendly. 
Um, trouble in West Germany. Um, yes. I think yes, of course. They, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so, so you've got. You, I'm you've, sure we'll come back. It's you've really got England, yeah. England, and the Netherlands. That that was trouble. Um, in at, Germany, at that time, that. in Germany. Um, so, <laughs> and then for for all the for all the hooligan porn that there is out there um, and has <laughs> been for quite a while, just in terms of writing and documentaries and whatever. Um, and I know the island of Sardinia and, and all of that that's going to come two years later and all the 70s and 80s stuff. Actually, across board, not, not just from an England perspective, but that this tournament um, it's kind of forgotten about for, for just how bad that was. I, again, across the board, not not, not just involving um, people from the British Isles. As I said, a lot of Dutch moving with great gusto um, and positivity um, uh, to, 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 to West Germany. Um, and yeah, there, there, there was a lot of trouble, which just didn't seem to resonate in that, that kind of cultural... Maybe people just get exhausted by it by that point. I don't know. It's just, it's just so... Yeah, okay, that... So used to it, so so normal. Whereas in Italy, because you have that island thing, that prison, um, that, that it becomes a kind of um, a different stage, a different set for it. I'm I'm, I'm not entirely sure. It was amazing reading David Lacey's preview in the Guardian. That about half of it is concerning combating hooliganism and yeah. public order instance yeah. before before sort of after six or seven paragraphs, he says, "I'm turning to the football." And you, <laughs> but there, there would have been a fear, and I'm not being. Um, I'm not indulging in hyperbole here, but there would have been a fear looking at that England attack, for example. If, you, if you're positive, go into it. If you're optimistic, go into it. Um, there would have been a fear at the back of the mind that's look, if we start well here, we get into the semi finals, we could get sent home because. Yeah, that was on yeah. the terraces. And this this fear of what happens off the pitch seriously affecting what, what, what could could happen on it. But it wasn't so much was still on, the, on the terraces, to be fair, Martin. It was yeah, more it was, likely yeah. to happen in city centres yeah, the day before or the yeah. afternoon. And in Sorry, theory, God. English I was going to say, in theory, English clubs could still have been readmitted, couldn't they, to European football in 1889? Everything was... Happen. But it was, everything kind of just, it was just an open thing, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes, it was. And this was, this was the, the, the big issue with the... the the ban post high so was it, it was it was indefinite indefinite was was not defined um it was hanging by a thread at all times and uefa kept saying we'll review it and they were going to review it that summer and well they did and said no thanks um, <laughs> yeah. and even going into italia 90 um leonard johansson said 90 percent chance this this continues 90% chance English clubs will not be back in um, season 1991. And, well, you all know the story of that, of course. And I think a lot of it um, affected by what went on in the park and Bobby mm. Robson's kind of avuncular humanity and Gascoigne and, 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 and all of this. And two, three days after the World Cup final, back in. Back in mm. and, and as of this year. And there would, there would always be, <laughs> there's always be a Scottish club waiting to take Take the UEFA Cup place, basically. Oh, that's right. And, yes, yes. And and right, there's no English clubs. We'll take that. And there was a Scottish club waiting to take um, that 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 extra UEFA Cup place, as, as as always. And they they got that taken away from them, um, which was a shame. Um, <laughs> I'll let you guess who that was at that particular season. But yeah, so the, the UEFA basically <laughs> kept England hanging, just just like cat and mouse, really. To be honest, it was it was they were kind of toying with that because they wouldn't they wouldn't commit to it. They, they, they would not commit to it. And they certainly all, 
all the time that was going on, though, the social mix and the age demographic of football crowds was changing quite rapidly. Um, it wasn't the same yeah. as it was in the late 70s and early 80s. It wasn't being pitched into some kind of maelstrom of, uh, of male testosterone and, and right-wing politics. It was changing quite a lot from that. Mm. It was still there, of course. Absolutely, it was still there. But... Um, I, I I think that that when England were readmitted, there were still issues, of course, the way with travelling fans. But it, I think the 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 mix of uh, supporters and level of organisation and just desire for the dust ups became very niche. Whereas before it was a minority, but let nobody tell you it was a small minority. It was a big enough minority to be noticed. And it was a big enough minority that you had to steer clear of um, because it wasn't just... In the football crowds in the 70s and 80s, um, you could go looking for the violence and find it. But sometimes the violence found you. By by the nineties, you had to go looking for it. Really, the the stewarding was better. Yeah. Demographics were different. So it was the it was the right time to come back. But there's an argument that you know here we are, what thirty years on, whether we've ever recovered from missing those years of development. I think is is an open question uh, in we, terms of we, football technique. But the other thing that was happening, of course, was the selling off of school playing fields, <clears throat> the ludicrous. Um, Charles Hughes' uh, approach to coaching position of maximum opportunity and this whole English exceptionalism to kind of everything, uh, the backwash of which we still haven't recovered from. This was one other point in the, uh, the, the preview about, yes, Liverpool were, were great and these, some of these players are looking good, but they've not been tested against continental teams for, for, for a wee while. They're not yeah. used to it. Um, and and we, will this will this be a problem? Anyway, gents, uh, 90 minutes we've not kicked the ball yet in this tournament. Um, <laughs> you know, things to come. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Martin. Thanks, Rob. Cheers, lads. At the end of that preview in World Soccer, um, Kieran Edge says, um, in the end, there can only be one winning team. The Germans, with their fragile attack, based on it, it's on the suspect fitness of Voller, and without Skipper, Alofs will keep it tight. They will probably win if the tournament is an event dominated by the artisans. But if the artists have their day, then watch out for Holland. Watch out indeed. Next week, we will see um, that grudge match between Denmark and Spain to the favourites, of course, Italy, West Germany. We see the Dutch and England start against the rank outsiders. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Until next time, bye for now.